Brooks Agnew is a master engineer. He served for four years in the US Air Force. He has worked for a number of Fortune 100 companies. He's the author of 12 books in print with seven bestsellers. He's the host of X Squared Radio, and he's organizing an expedition to seek the entrance to the inner Earth from the North Pole. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Do you roll on the line? Uh, welcome, Brooks, to Exopolitics Today. So glad to be here. Nice to see you again, Michael. Yes, it's been many years. I remember you came out and did one of the Hawaii conferences with us. I think that must have been around 2008 or nine. And uh, yeah, I remember that's a long time ago. And so what, what have you been doing uh, ever since? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I have, uh, of course, written 12 books. The, I finished the Arc of Millions of Years series, which was a four-book series about uh, how the 44 ancient cultures felt about the origin and destiny of Earth. Learned a lot. Uh, after finishing that, I realized that these ancient cultures had one theme in common, and that was that they felt that the Earth was a living thing, that it had a consciousness, and that that mankind had a symbiotic relationship with that Earth. And when they were good, Earth blessed them, and when they were evil, Earth had an allergic reaction against them. So I wrote a series of books, uh, a trilogy called the Birth Trilogy. It's a play on words, birth of a new earth. So it's B-E-A-R-T-H. And it's a novel, but everything in it comes from that ancient history. And what it does is it's an action sci-fi sort of end times rapture book about how the planet Earth decides after 8 billion people on the planet and half of them are good and half of them are wicked it decides to split back into its original forms a spirit earth and a physical earth and mankind divides with the earths so it's a it's a really great white knuckle ride action adventure story and uh, we've recently uh, negotiated the sale of the film rights to amazon so we're we're pleased with that well, I'd like to know more about the arc of millions of years. I mean, that sounds fascinating. So, I mean, how did you get the data for that? Was that like based on fieldwork, looking at uh, ancient texts? I mean, it was. Uh, I actually had a co-author, E.J. Clark. Uh, she approached me, I think it was in 2001. I had finished the lecture on something. I don't remember what it was, but uh, she approached me after the lecture and said she had an idea for a book which I, of course, written lots of articles for magazines, but never written a book. And I, I thought, well, that was that was nice, you know. But then she showed me a picture. And this picture, she said, what do you think this is? I said, well, it, it kind of looks like a particle accelerator. And she said, well, that's what I thought too, but it comes from a Babylonian scroll 5,000 years old. And I went, okay, you have my attention. So we started working on the arc of millions of years, and it turned out to be volume one. And honestly, when we finished it, I told her, well, we've done it. We wrote a book. You know, you buy five copies, I'll buy five copies, and and we'll say we're authors. But Barnes & Noble had something else in mind. That book went to the top 40 on all books sold, and it, we made a ton of money off that book. So that 
paid for us to be able to travel the world and gather our own data and produce three more books. So it's really firsthand research and it's a lot of other people's texts that we used. We have a huge bibliography for the first volume and our own original photographs and analysis for the last three volumes. As far as um, say your, your research on the, the Nephilim, the Sumerian uh, records, biblical records, I mean, some of that field work, did you go to some of these uh, libraries um, in, in that region? Oh yeah, we went to Egypt and China and Japan, Mexico. We, we, we traveled as many countries as we could. And uh, what we found was evidence of an ancient civilization that, that wasn't the Egyptians. It was a long time before them. And we found lots and lots of evidence uh, in every culture that we went to of, of giants and of interaction with what they called the shining ones. These, these, they were not really called extraterrestrials, but they were called like off-worlders in their language. And uh, the, they would come to their culture and teach them things like space and architecture and animal husbandry and uh, agriculture and of course war and uh we thought that the theme was very common and also some of the aspects of them were very common and we found that not only was there a tribe of giant excuse me a tribe of giants called the nephilim but there were also nephilim that were fallen angels these were actual off-worlders that came here with the responsibility of watching over mankind to make sure we didn't stub our toe and go extinct, I guess. And I guess they got carried away with themselves and did what we all do. That's fall in love with earth women. And, uh, well, the rest is a terrible history of, uh, of a God getting upset with that and flooding the earth and, uh, that those bloodlines surviving even to this day and trying to still rule the world. So if you want to maybe just clarify exactly who the Nephilim are in relationship to like the fallen angels. And of course you have another group like the righteous angels. I mean, the book of Enoch describes that. So yeah, just, just explain to us this cast of supernatural beings that have been manipulating, controlling humanity behind the scenes for millennia. Well, you know, all of the ancient writings and records that we use to write the Ark series include, of course, the Bible and as old the texts and translations as we could find. And what we found is by the time you get out of, I don't know, Genesis chapter six, you're introduced to five races, none of whom are from here. They're, they're all from off world. And once you realize that, then you see the interaction between God and his creation and these other races that I guess get involved and genetically become involved with the race of mankind. And the result was, uh, well, some call them abominations, some call them hybrids, but uh, for sure they were, they were genetic anomalies and it didn't take long, just a few hundred years, they had pretty much taken over the world. And uh, then you see uh, God uh, cleansing the world with a flood and you think, okay, well, that's it. And then here you go, just a few chapters later, a few books later, the Nephilim are back. So you see that these 
off-worlders had the ability to leave the planet, I guess, while the flood was going on and then return, or to go inside the planet, protect themselves, and then come out at the end of that and reassert their influence. So this is this is something that they had in mind. They had a mission. They had a, a reason why they wanted to do this, not just for their own entertainment. It was kind of an ongoing war that had been described uh, not only in the book of Revelation, but in other books in the Bible and ancient texts where there was a war in heaven or a war in space, and that war ended up coming to earth. And we're still fighting it. Right. Well, I know there have been a number of uh, authors, uh, Paul Wallace and Maro Bilino, stand out that they have been discussing or presenting a lot of biblical evidence showing that uh, that the Elohim were that the Yahweh, that that being described as God in the Old Testament, that that actually he is part of a, a plural, plurality of beings, Anunnaki, that have vied for power over humanity for millennia. So, you know, where do you stand on that in terms of these different beings, you know, whether we call them Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, Allah, you know, these supposedly supreme beings and these like Elohim or the Nephilim, fallen angels, where do you stand on that? Well, I try to approach everything from a scientific viewpoint. Uh, I'm a data-driven person. I know that personal observation is a fact, but I prefer corroborated facts. I really prefer facts that I can validate with machinery or with technology. So that kind of drives me to maybe be more critical of these stories, but I do see a ton of evidence, not just in architecture, but also in the purpose of societies. Now, it's one thing to build nice buildings, but it's another thing to have pretty much a primitive culture. That is to say, you're hunter-gatherers, or you have limited reach with your society, maybe 200 or 300,000 people or a million people at the most, for hundreds of years, 500, 600 years. And yet here are these magnificent uh, pieces of architecture that withstood everything Earth could throw at them. And one has to wonder why. It gave them no benefit whatsoever in their day. Were they doing it because why? What was the reason? And the only reason that I can validate over time is that they needed to build something that would last until today so that we would ask, why were these things built? Because something about our uh, presence on this earth, our individual presence, humans, we are really ancient beings. We are eons old. Even though we have normal lifespans of 50 to 100 years, we have lots of them. And over time, over eons of time, we gain experience and wisdom. And the more we can recall that wisdom and experience from lifetime to lifetime, the greater our society becomes, the greater our discoveries become. I don't think it was really until we started looking back and seeing pyramids and complexes and star patterns built out in, in city layouts that we started asking questions where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the purpose for being here? And what I realized that Earth, strangely enough, because we've looked 
for 25,000 light years in every direction in our galaxy in pretty deep detail. There's nothing like Earth. This is the greatest show in the universe. You roll on the line. So all these sentient races are coming here because this is the battleground right here, Earth. Well, okay, so we, we can have like a number of different visiting extraterrestrials playing these roles in creating religion. Now, you raise a very good point because, you know, I ask the question sometimes, you remember uh, Columbus, Columbus came here to this continent. Who was here when he got here? Well, I mean, we, we're talking about the uh, indigenous peoples Sure, the Americans, right? Oh. I mean, the Cherokee, the Blackfoot, the Apache, Lakotas, they were all here, right? What were they doing? They were killing each other. They would travel hundreds of miles and wipe a whole village out down to the last child. Why? Wasn't like there was a shortage of buffalo or fish. Wasn't like there weren't enough raspberries where they lived. It's because their gods told them to. So who were their gods? It was the ETs. It was these highly advanced beings that were living among them. So you have to ask yourself the question, gosh, if you wanted to take over the world, it had been a whole lot easier when we were shooting arrows and riding horses, right? Then, then now, that's not their goal. Their goal is not to take over the world. Their goal is to make the world fight itself. They live off this negative energy. They soak it in. And the more they, the more rage that they can sow on a planet, the happier they are. And we're seeing it happen around us right now. So, you know, when you're talking about that negative energy, uh, some people, uh, Bob Monroe, uh, talked about Lush and said that this was some a type of energy that's generated. So these different extraterrestrial visitors create religions and instill this kind of war uh, ethic into certain religions we know that is is part of uh you know the, the way in which some of the religions uh, operate that you've just described so but then you have the countervailing uh, religions i mean you have for example akhenaten from egypt you have jesus uh from palestine you have the buddha that teach love and compassion and empathy so are we talking about a different group of extraterrestrials trying to kind of like bring in a, a countervailing set of values and behaviors? Well, I think actually that was the original set. The original set was to create a loving and kind of divine, almost celestial society. But it is the overwhelming energy of these other off-worlders that come and create religions. Remember, Jesus didn't create a religion, neither did Buddha. Uh, but when the religions are created, then there is the inherent conflict. Um, one of the things that uh, that uh, uh, these great teachers taught is the eternality of the human soul. And one of the things that we learn in the in the mathematics and in the sacred geometry of these ancient uh, higher uh, teachings is something called the Merkaba or the flower of life. What we realize is tied into a principle uh, called the Fibonacci sequence. So, but the Fibonacci sequence isn't just in one direction, it's in two directions. The counterclockwise energy is known in the ancients 
as female energy or creative energy. It's a loving energy. It creates harmony and it creates higher understanding, care and benevolence and charity. The clockwise energy is the male energy. It's dominating. It's violent. It's destructive. And what we see in these religions that are patriarchally oriented, that is to say they're male in their energy, is they're all destructive. They all hate all other religions. There's no tolerance in them. Uh, yeah, there's definitely that kind of like competitive warlike element in in many of the religions. But you say that, you know, those Christ-like, Buddha-like uh, figures, they come along and they establish a way of thinking. They don't establish a religion, but someone else comes along after them and appropriates it to create... You know, we know that in, in Christianity, I mean, you had the uh, the just war ethic and, and you had the Crusades supposedly spreading Christianity, which was totally different to everything Jesus or Yahweh, uh, that uh, Yeshua taught. Yeah, they don't like spreading religion by the sword, but that's how religion spreads in this world. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's true. There is a a book that was very influential for me, and I, I just know what you thought of it, that was William Bramley's book, The Gods of Eden, where he talked about similar issues. So, you know, what what, what do you know of, of him, his book, and what he had to say about this history? He called them the custodial, the, the, the custodians. You know, the book took me by surprise because I was expecting, oh, you know, God coming down and putting Adam here and then bringing Eve and, you know, all the judgment and everything. That's not what he was talking about at all. He was saying Adam and Eve were the gods. He was saying that their offspring, that we are actually gods in embryo and that we've been sidetracked by this whole third dimensional race for toys and wealth and 401k and all that. We've been sidetracked from our original uh purpose that's interesting okay all right well that's uh uh a very different read to what i had uh from from him but uh, i i i know that he did talk a lot about you know this this history uh that's kind of similar to what we described involving these these beings now you talk about the book of enoch and and that seems to be something that is very important for this arc of millions of years. And you described the original 200, uh, I guess, fallen angels that, that arrived. And, and you say that out of that original 200, four survived, that four are alive today. And you, you point out their different locations. So you want to tell us about that? Yeah. The main leader of the, of the fallen was uh, an angel called Semyazek. It has several different spellings, but he was uh, evidently the, the head uh, of the Watchers. And then there was, um, uh, let's see, Azazel, and there were a couple of others, and they had different talents. And I would also go so far as to say that I think in the book, they weren't actually killed. They were imprisoned. So they were wrapped in chains and buried in the earth or buried under the water. Uh, there is rumor that some of the deep caves along the edge of the Euphrates, that they were actually imprisoned in some of these caves. And now the Euphrates is drying up and some of these caves are being exposed. And there's a possibility that some of these angels, these ancient watchers might be released 
on the earth again. I believe, and I'm not alone in this, that Semyaza is still here. He's still on the earth. And even though they're few in number, they are amazingly powerful. They have tremendous wisdom. They know how systems work. They know how to corrupt men. And they know how to make men powerful and greedy. And they know how to tap into those dark forces. And those dark forces can be very blessing to people who follow them. Uh, don't think that uh, Lucifer just makes everybody miserable. He doesn't. If you pray to him, he'll answer prayers and he'll make you rich. He'll give you a golden voice. He'll give you a beautiful face. He'll make the camera love your presence for a while. And then he will take you back. He always betrays. But we are seeing individuals on this earth that defy all description, how wicked and how wealthy they have become and how untouchable they are. They walk with impunity. They can kill, they can rape, they can steal from whoever they want and nothing happens to them. That's this charm of favor that comes upon them through this supernatural uh, coverage that these angels can wield. Now, you, you mentioned uh, some locations, and you mentioned Cheyenne Mountain and one in Antarctica. Yeah. That, that was curious to me. I mean, Cheyenne Mountain is, is where you actually have a you know, major continuity of government facility, and uh, so supposedly this is where uh, the, the, the patriots who are associated with uh, the, the Trump faction, the, the, the Trump won the 2020 election faction, that Cheyenne Mountain is supposed to be the, the last stronghold for that. And, and so, but you're saying this is where one of these fallen angels has his base. So yeah, I, to, I wrote a trilogy of books called The Birth Trilogy. And uh, in that trilogy, the, the unconquerable force is Semyaza, and he's holed up in Cheyenne Mountain, and he is commanding several generals. One of them is General Morley, who actually uh, uh, prosecutes the war between the planets. The two planets go to war and they separate. So I don't know this for a fact, but I know the deep places in the mountains that are protected. It's the place where... And also in, in Antarctica, maybe the location of one of these angels. And that's why uh, the leaders of the world, the Pope's emissary, you know, these powerful rich men, that's why they go up to Antarctica. It's not to see penguins. It's to meet this angel face to face. Well, Antarctica uh, has been known to have some of these uh, ancient bases with very powerful forces there. I mean, we, the whole kind of Nazi exodus to antarctica at the end of the second world war and building a, a vast infrastructure there i mean there, there's a lot of support for that so and they had help so it's not surprising that there would have been a fallen angel there uh, but uh, yeah the, the cheyenne mountain connection is is a is a very interesting one so that kind of like raises the question uh, so if, if you've got out of the original 200 fallen angels, you know, the, there's four of them that are remaining. So what does that suggest for the days that are coming? Well, I think we're in probably the most dangerous times that we've ever been in. Uh, the weapons are very powerful. They're very fast. And a mistake uh, would be devastating. 
for the population of of mankind. But is it just the destruction that would come from the release of one of these weapons, an EMP weapon or a nuclear weapon or a bio weapon? It, it's not just the the destruction; it's the terror that comes from it. It's the fear that is spread to every society that we really don't ever relax. We don't ever think, you know, we finally made it. We finally have uh, more than what we need. We can now not only meet our needs, but we can maybe take a vacation. We can actually, you know, buy a second home. We can, we can become successful. Every time the middle class has got to that point, the rulers of the world have destroyed them. And they just got done doing it again in 2008. They just wiped the middle class out. Now here we are 15 years later and we're struggling. The middle class is trying to come back again. These are, these are hardworking people. They're working 80, 90 hours a week, husband and wife, and they're trying to get ahead and they just barely do. And here comes uh, the overlords again. They just met again in Davos. And what are they discussing? Killing all of our cattle, stopping us from farming, uh, taking all of our money away and giving us some digital resemblance of it that they control. What can we do about that? There's just nothing. We just feel powerless. We feel hopeless. And so it's a very difficult time for the race of mankind right now. Well, this takes me to the question about these two Earths. You know, you talk about one being four and a half billion years old, and of course the scientific community would agree with that. And you say there's another that is 6,000 years old, and of course the creationists would agree with that. So, I mean, how do you reconcile these two very different explanations? Well, uh, I just do it like the book of Genesis says. The book of Genesis says that, um, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and you know how that goes, but then the, the Spirit of God uh, moved across the face of the deep and divided the waters from the water. So he he divided this water planet in two. And then one of them I, in the book, call Eden. That's Eden. That's where Adam lived. That's where all the animals and plants and everything were. And that's where Eve was eventually taken when when she came of age. So when they fell, when they were corrupted by the angels that went there and and, and Lucifer, then Eden was transported from where it was through the rift in the Milky Way. This is what it says in the ancient writings. And it merged with this earth right here around this sun and this moon. And so you had a higher vibrational earth and a lower vibrational earth that came together. And it took seven months for things to settle down enough so that Noah could land his ark of millions of years and step out onto this planet. And then the souls on that ark genetically blended with the people that were here on this planet. And we are the result of all of that breeding over many millennia. <clears throat> so now here we are at the end and at the end of uh, the age, the spirit earth is going to separate again from the temporal earth. And it's going to return home with everybody that will vibrate at that frequency. And we're seeing it right now around us. We're watching what I call the grand division, where people that live in the light are living their lives and the darkness, the dark world, doesn't even comprehend that they exist. 
even the pollsters, even elections, they're totally surprised when they have an election. Where the heck do these people come from? They came from the light. You don't see them because you're in the darkness. And now we're seeing this light, which you and I have been partially responsible for spreading our entire lives around this planet with everywhere we visited, everywhere we've taught and lectured. The light is beginning to gather and they're beginning to group together and pull together. And so parallel societies are forming right now on the earth. And when the two earths separate, the parallel societies will separate with it. Okay, you said something really interesting there. You, you said that the arc of millions of years arrived and, and, and Noah dislodged from it. So, I mean, are we talking about a space arc? Are we talking about an actual vehicle that is you know, very, very ancient that is used to move peoples around during times of cataclysm? Well, we think always think in terms of spaceships, but actually Earth is a spaceship. It's just big enough that it has an atmosphere on the outside and we're whipping through space at 68,000 miles an hour. We're lucky enough to be able to live on the outside of our spaceship, but it is still a spaceship. And Noah called his ship the Ark of Millions of Years. That's why we call it the book, The Ark of Millions of Years. That's what he called his own ship. So when his ship landed from being at sea for however long it was at sea, it took seven months for the waves and everything to settle down and him to reach land because they didn't have any sails or motors or anything on it. So it just drifted. But uh, that arc of millions of years was the boat. It was the ship on Eden that arrived here. Okay. And Eden, I mean, it sounds as though this was an um, off-world location. I mean, is that also a ship? You're yeah, talking about I think, I think Eden was the planet. You know, when, when we talk about building a garden, eastward in Eden, it could have just as easily been eastward on Eden. Eden was the planet. Okay. All right. So again, so can maybe just explain this earth that's four and a half billion years old. And I presume that four and a half billion year old earth has a higher frequency and the other earth this oh no uh, is this the earth that we associate with noah that's six thousand years old is that a lower frequency oh, that is the higher frequency the one that was here upon which man was created you know in god's image to multiply and replenish earth till the earth all that that man was here on this earth at a lower frequency it's called the lower atom in the scriptures it's in many ancient writings it's called the lower atom the higher atom was on the other planet with Noah, who was spared from whatever cataclysm happened to blend these two planets together. Uh, and so what you had was higher Adam and lower Adam bloodlines merged. That's what happened when, uh, when Cain left the Garden of Eden and went to marry a woman in the land of Nod. So Adam and Eve were not the only people on the earth. They were the only higher Adam but they weren't the only people. The land of Nod also had people, and that's where Cain went. Okay, so how do you have this kind of blending of these two Earths? I'm, I'm not quite understanding how you would have like this ancient Earth, four and a half billion years old, that's kind of lower, lower frequency that scientists would say, yeah, yeah, that's what our kind of fossil records show. And then you have this 
newer Earth that's higher frequency that arrives 6,000 years ago. I mean, are we talking about like two planetoids that somehow merge vibrationally? Yes. Uh, let me explain it to you this way. When we look at, for instance, uh, biological and botanical records, we do see a fairly steady uh, kind of mutation existence for millions of years. And all of a sudden, we see a massive change in genus and in uh, genetic uh, variety. We see a, a huge input of different DNA come in. It's just like a left-hand turn. Everything takes biologically and botanically. And the other thing is that Earth, it's not very dense. It's actually about one gram, 1.2 grams per cubic centimeter, which is just a little more dense than water. If you were to take a five gallon bucket and fill it with glass marbles all the way to the brim, and then you were to take another gallon and a half of water and pour it into that same bucket, it would fit because it would fill in the space between all of the marbles. So you have higher vibrational earth, which is represented by the water, lower vibrational earth, which is represented by the marbles, and they're occupying the same space, which is the bucket, which represents our earth as it is right now. Okay, so this uh, higher vibrational earth is 6,000 years old. Now that kind of like, well, when we say 6,000, I guess that kind of is pretty close to the beginning of the Sumerian uh, civilization. I mean, of course, the Bible talks about the beginning of humans 6,000 years ago, that the creation. Of course, the Sumerian records date to, what is it, 3,800 BC? So that's roughly 6,000 BC. Right. So that's, so sorry, so, sorry, that's 6,000 years ago, not 6,000 BC. So that's, so that's roughly when this event happened and because that's when there was this, this kind of flourishing of civilization on the earth with the Sumerians and that kind of really went around the planet. So that was this birthing. Yeah, and we see it. It's not just ancient uh, society. Like when, when Egyptus walked into the Nile River Valley as they were migrating, those pyramids were already there. They'd been there for 4,000 years in pristine condition. The Egyptians didn't build them. They inherited them, and then they tried to copy them. But we also see that in societies all over the world. Here in this continent and in Europe, we see buildings that are that 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 represent cymatic frequencies, cymatic patterns that are made by frequency in the glass, in the structure of those buildings. Those people didn't build those buildings. Those buildings were there already. They inherited those buildings. These huge orphanages, these huge edifices of solid marble that you see, you know, old black and white photographs of these buildings, supposedly under construction with scaffolding all around them. But if you look very closely, they're not building those buildings. They're painting those buildings. They didn't build those buildings. They inherited those buildings. And there are thousands of them all over the world. There have been many, many zeniths of very highly advanced peoples living on this planet, and then they're gone. Oh, definitely, yeah, that's our history for sure. So I wanted to uh, maybe see if this kind of theory of two Earths 
casts light on the inner earth theory. I mean, the, the inner earth theory, and I know you talk a lot about that and we'll talk about your expedition uh, a little later, you know, is the idea, of course, that in uh, under the earth's surface, there, there are vast caverns and vast civilizations of beings and uh, animals and oceans. So you want to talk about, you know, what you think lies beneath the surface of the planet? Well, I'll tell you what the science says. Uh, in 2006, uh, Dr. Y. Sessions at Washington University up in St. Louis uh, got his grad students for basically cold pizza to take 600,000 seismograms. These are, these are readout records that come from earthquakes that we get from seismometers that we have all over the planet. And, but they just generate these records. So what they did is they took the records, the vibrational records and the time uh, travel uh, records of these waves propagating through the planet. And they put them into a computer model where they could kind of do a CAT scan of the earth using the vibrations from the earthquakes as the origin of the vibration. And what they found was, what they discovered was another ocean underneath the Atlantic Ocean that was the size of the Arctic Ocean. And they could see in the waves the damping of waves, water waves crashing on the shore on the inside of the crest, about 900 miles thick. This was remarkable. And lots of science got done since then, space programs, oceanographic uh, programs, and also what we call spectrographic programs. So they're not making vibrations, they're listening to vibrations of the earth. And two different uh, experiments were done, one in Japan and one at Cambridge, uh, at Cambridge, and one at Carnegie Science. And I'll explain the last one last. But what they started to do is listen to the frequencies that are coming from the core of the earth. And one thing we know in chemistry is we know the sound, and that is to say, we know the frequency of every single molecular bond in the book. We have catalogs of them. We know what they are. And the frequencies that we were getting from the center of the earth were actually kind of clean. One was a signature that iron makes at about 6,000 degrees C. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's the frequency it was making. And then there was a side hump to it, and I'll explain that when I get to the Carnegie Science uh, experiment. But two different labs, two different sets of data, and the graphs lined up with each other. And these were receive-only. They weren't, they weren't dynamic. That is to say they were just listening, like you're just looking at something, not taking a flash picture of it. You're not throwing photons at it. You're just listening. So along comes Carnegie Science, and they build what's called a diamond anvil. Now, a diamond anvil is made uh, by taking an industrial diamond that's about this big around. It's big. And they cleave it in two. And then they divide the halves and put the top half on a hydraulic ram and the bottom half on what's called the anvil. And then they put a crucible, which is a, a small uh, bowl, a metal bowl that they could heat metal in. They put it in between the diamonds and they filled it with iron filings. And then they crushed it by taking this ram and applying 
multiple tons of pressure to duplicate what they think is the pressure on the inside of the planet. They still didn't match the frequency, so they had to shoot a laser through the diamond and heat up that crucible to 6,000 degrees C, and the peaks lined up perfectly. The only thing missing was the side peak. And through a lot of experimentation, they finally found that side peak. It was xenon. And it solved a partial pressure problem that we've had with the ocean for a long, long time. Partial pressure says that if I take the headspace of this bottle of Barrier, a sample from this headspace, the chemicals that are in this headspace are going to be proportional to the chemicals that are in the liquid. It's called the law of partial pressures. When we take samples of the ocean, we get xenon. When we take samples of the headspace above the ocean, the xenon's missing. We don't know where it went. For a long time, we didn't know. And now we do. It forms a solid crystal inside the core of the Earth. Iron and xenon forming a single crystal at 6,000 degrees C. And it puts off light in the visible range. Okay, well, uh, so the Earth diameter is what eight thousand miles. I mean, the core, the center of the Earth, hundred miles. Yeah, and the core is like twelve hundred fifty miles thick, and then there's a about eight hundred mile gap, and then a nine hundred mile crust. Okay, so that's a vast area. Now, of oh, course, yeah. modern science is going to speculate based on these the data accumulated through seismographic tests and other devices that, okay, you know, there's these rocks here, these crystals there, you know, this molten lava is here. But but we know from uh, over the last, you know, more than 100 years, there have, there have been people that, that have say that they've been taken into the inner Earth. Of course, you have uh, people that see spacecraft going into the Earth. Um, you, know, you have you know, lots of data coming from non-scientific sources saying that there are these vast areas under the earth you know cities like for example shambhala the, the city of, of shambhala supposed to be one of these inner earth uh civilizations so you know where does that fit in in terms of the inner earth well let's take it one at a time all right i i i've read all the stories and i have to take them as facts they appear to be personal experiences but they're uncorroborated facts so entertaining yes I can't refute any of them, no. Uh, cities, totally plausible, because in order for there to be an ocean on the inside of the crust, that means it's liquid. That means it's less than 212 degrees. And if you were to have a, a core at 6,000 degrees C, which, by the way, is equal to the surface of the sun, not the corona, but the surface, 800 miles away, insulated by air, you might have a livable environment where life could prosper on the inside of the crust. So all of these totally make sense. Now, when you look at the uh, scripts, uh, uh, what's it called? It has an acronym, but I'm just gonna say a, a survey of rays, like manta rays and stingrays that was done in 2009 after the great, calving event that happened in the arctic in 2008 we had a really weird warm winter and we had a, a prevailing wind kind of like a polar vortex only sideways 
and it created such strength on the ice that a huge piece of ice almost the size of the state of rhode island uh broke off and it made the northwest passage navigable for the first time and I don't know, maybe 20,000 years. We don't, we don't really know. There's no record of it ever being navigable except for that time. The following summer, Scripps does this survey in Malaysia. They go down there and they sample rays because rays are very sensitive to pollution and chemistry changes and temperature changes in the water, and they mutate, kind of like tree frogs do in the Amazon. And what they found, normally what they find is about 50 to 200 different mutations. But in 2009, they found 1,500, and many of them were new species, and many of them were very ancient species like frilled sharks and dorsal squids and things we haven't seen for a million years. But they were alive and they were mature, swimming around. We caught them off the coast of Malaysia. So the, so the probable... Uh, origin of this was that event that happened in 2008 where that section of ocean became open to the air and these creatures came up out of the center ocean into our ocean got into the gulf stream and made their way down to malaysia it just makes total sense now when you take the other set of data you talked about ufos that's something I photographed myself in daylight with two different digital cameras. I know they exist. Have I seen one up close? Well, no, about five miles away, and it was big and it was fuzzy, but we did photograph it, and I took multiple photographs of it. We know that UFOs exist. There are eyewitnesses all over the planet, all kinds of evidence that they exist. So we asked basically four questions. Where do they go when they're not flying around? I mean, they don't fly around all the time. They got to land. They got to like do stuff, right? They got to get something to eat. <laughs> they got to propagate. They have to do stuff. Where do they go? Well, they're not landing on the surface because nobody can see them there. They got to go someplace, either at the bottom of the sea or inside the planet. And the other three questions are very simple. Uh, if they are, let's say, manned by off-worlders, people not from this world, but from some other world. We asked the question, why are they here? And uh, where's the ships? You know, why are they here? And what, what, what is their purpose? What do they want to do? Where did they come from? That's the basic questions that we have. We don't have answers to those questions. We thought we were going to get some with disclosure, but we didn't get anywhere close to it. We don't know where the ship is. We don't know where they come from, and we don't know why they're here. Well, I know there's been a recent paper uh, speculating about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis that many of the UFOs, rather than being kind of like off-world extraterrestrial vehicles or being interdimensional, coming from some other dimension, actually come from the inner Earth that there are vast areas at the bottom of the ocean or beneath the earth. So so that seems to be uh, a, a very important explanation. So you, it sounds like you, you agree with that, that the crypto-terrestrial... I can't refute that. I cannot refute that. If there is space there, I can tell you as a scientist, there will be life. Okay, that's okay. good to know. Uh, there is a book uh, authored by... Uh, a, a very interesting Romanian, uh, supposedly uh, an insider called uh, Radu Cinema, 
and the book's uh, called Inside the Earth. And he, and he claims that as you go deeper and deeper into the earth, that the structure of the earth is very different to what modern science deduces based from seismographic studies. He, he claims that the inner earth is layered in terms of uh, vibrational densities. And as you go from a third uh, density to a fourth density to a fifth density, uh, the higher the densities as you approach the core of the earth, which he says that the core of the planet is an sun. It's an inner sun that vibrates at a very high frequency, seventh, eighth, I'm not quite sure what frequency it is, that um, no instruments can uh, go that far and that all of the modern scientific data is based on faulty speculations or deduced from uh, instruments that do not work in terms of penetrating into the interior of the earth, that they just reflect off one of these kind of uh, barriers, like from the third density to the fourth and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah. I've heard that too. And that's why I kind of give uh, credibility to the Japanese and the Cambridge methods, because they're not broadcasting anything. They're just listening. And they're the ones that are picking up these frequencies that are coming out of the earth. As far as the densities, I, I can't really refute that either. I don't know what the conditions are like on the inside of the planet. I know I have a hard enough time with the conditions on the outside of the planet. I hate gravity. It's, it's, it does terrible things to me. Uh, but I would think that gravity gets less and less and less as you go further into the planet. So I could see those densities changing. Yeah, it's a fascinating theory and uh, definitely would love. I guess you would have to go to the inner earth, and that's exactly what you've been trying to do now, right? For I know when you traveled to Hawaii and, and you did a presentation there, you, you're you talking about the inner earth expedition you're organizing. So, you know, w where does that stand? Well, that you're lucky. I almost, I almost didn't come back. I mean, just Hawaii is amazing. Uh <laughs> We, uh, of course, it takes a lot of money to put these things together, but we don't really think about the money. We just work hard and, and, and put it together piece by piece. And uh, so in 2021, I, I'm sorry, it was uh, 2020, we actually had planned our first leg. So we had all of our tickets bought, all our plane tickets bought. Uh, me and my team were going to Moscow, and then we were going to St. Petersburg, and then we were going north to Murmansk, which is where this port is, where the Murmansk shipping company is that builds these nuclear-powered icebreakers. We were going to tour the ship, take some footage there, interview the shipping company with our, our charter company. It was going to be basically laying the groundwork for getting 100 scientists from their universities to the ship out 15 days and back to try to see if we can verify this opening in the crust, which is, by the way, 4,400 meters under the water. So it's it's very deep, but we could still, we had instruments that could we could send down and gather samples off the bottom, which no one's ever seen before. This, this area of the earth's never been sailed before, ever, by, by humans. So they were excited about it. We were excited about it. We had a great working relationship with the Russians. And all of a sudden, they locked the whole world down. And by the time the world got unlocked, uh, we were at war. And so here we were, unable to buy Russian salad dressing, let alone rent a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker. 
And to this day, even today, I spoke with the charter company. They're not doing any Arctic movement at all, only Antarctic. Well, okay, that's very you know, interesting. What about the rapture and the whole end times scenarios? I mean, there's a lot of people talking about these uh, possibilities. I mean, you've talked about the two Earths. People are talking about the two presidents. People are talking about rapture end times. So what's what's going down right now? Uh, well, there's a lot of discussions about tribulations and pre-trib and post-trib and rapture. And, and the, the, the concept of rapture is very extra biblical. That is to say, it doesn't exist in the Bible. Uh, Thessalonians talks about, you know, the righteous being taken up and the blink of an eye and and then looking down and seeing the wicked burn a stubble frankly i don't want to be there i i just don't i have no desire to be in the bleachers and watch eight billion people burn not my idea of fun put me at ground zero let's get it over with um i don't think the rapture is real i think that the rapture is a a deception to take us away from the true vibrational frequencies that make up a living being called planet earth and that one day the soul the spirit part of planet earth is going to go home and we're going to go with it or we're not and i think that's what's really going to happen i think that the grand division is occurring as we speak we're watching it seeing it every day in our society even people that we work around the ones that are vibrating in a high frequency, we get along with, we meet with, we have lunch with, we have conversations with, where our, our kids play soccer together. The others, the dark frequency people, we don't even see them. We don't even interact with them at all. It's like our society has already split and we're just waiting for the earth to finish it off. So how is the Earth going to finish that off? I mean, is there going to be some real splitting, uh, a separation in terms of some people are going to experience a utopian, uh, going to move into some utopian Earth and another group are going to move into a Earth that's imploding? How's the split going to happen? Well, the two Earths are quite different. One is rock and metal, and the other one is higher vibrational and basically a life force. So what people are going to feel is, I, I remember when we were kids, you know, we used to go to church every Sunday, and even up until I was in you know, my, my mid-40s. But uh, it was sort of like you go to church and you get this kind of clean feeling, and then you come out of church and it's a bright, beautiful day, and you go watch some football, and by Tuesday, the week's going a little bit south, and by Wednesday, it's shot, and you just sort of coast the rest of the way till you get to Sunday and get back on the other side of the line. But as I grew older, that line got wider and wider and wider, and then all of a sudden, you couldn't just jump from one side to the other from Sunday to the rest of the week. You had to pick a side because you just couldn't run fast enough to get back to the other side in in one day. And that's where we are today. People are making choices. People are making decisions on how they're going to live. Marriages are breaking up. People are moving away from their families. Families are dividing up, never speaking to each other again. We are watching this division 
happening. And the division is now, of course, turning into a gathering. These groups on either side, the blue side, the red side, however you want to describe it, the, the globalists and the, and the people who want to farm the earth, this division is everywhere. We're watching it happen. And the planet is going to go through some cataclysms as it begins coming apart. And I think about 2046, we're due a solar micronova. It happens every 12,000 years. This could be the event that, that splits off the Earth. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, so we're talking about a possible micronova 22 years in the future. So would, would that be a factor in why it is that the government seems to be more open now to the UFO information? I mean, do they want to get this technology out there to kind of like prepare humanity? I don't know how open they are to it. I've put a lot of pressure on them and so have my colleagues and they're not cracking. They're just not. I mean, if I was on that committee and I was asking Grush and his people those questions, I would have just said, I got three questions for you. First of all, you've met him, you've talked to him, you spent some time with him. Why are they here? Where did they come from? And my third one, Mr. Grush, is where's the ship? Where's the ship? I want to see the ship. Let's go see the ship right now. I would put a lot of pressure on them to show us what they have. They have no reason to hide that stuff from us anymore. Right. Well, I mean, uh, if if people in government are aware of some data saying that in 22 years there's going to be a micronova, then you would think that they would start the ball rolling to kind of like prepare the infrastructure if they need to take a lot of people off planet or to protect them during some such an event. I think they're just thinking about themselves. I'm watching them build bunkers as fast as they can build them. But they're not building for us. They're building them for them. I got news for you. I think you should go ahead and get in those bunkers. Do it right now, and we'll take it from here. Okay, well, so what do you see happening now in terms of like the next five, ten years? I mean, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? No. I am very optimistic because I think that the energy that we have uh, to sit down and talk and, and stop all this war, I think it's very strong. I don't think it's ever been this strong on the earth. So I'm very optimistic. I think in the next eight or nine months, we're going to walk away from this precipice of war. And I don't think we're going to talk about it again for, for the rest of my life, maybe the rest of my kids' lives. We're going to start talking about how do we get along as a planet. Not globalists, but as nations, as communities. How do we get along? How do we make this happen? How do you feed us and we provide you energy? How do we share this world? I think that the energy for the first time in human history is there for that to happen. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that that is a very positive uh, vision. And I, I think it kind of like the mission of exopolitics forever, forever. Yeah. Well, I think that is probably one of the conditions that we have to reach as a planet before the, the more positive evolved extraterrestrial societies start revealing themselves, that we achieve this kind of planetary peace where you know, going to war amongst one another becomes unthinkable, just as today it's unthinkable that France and Germany would go to war against one another, whereas 
you know, go back a thousand years in history, they were always fighting. I reckon. Now it's unthinkable. So, so we need to reach that. And and I think what you've said is very important. That I think the planet people are saying no more wars. These endless wars. Let's put an end to them. And once that happens, then the positive uh, extraterrestrials can reveal themselves. Well, societies go through a, a four-phase cycle. They have done it for millennia. It's mercy, peace, justice, and war. When we reach terrible situation where things are just so oppressive, we scream out for mercy. And mercy comes. It always comes in history after pandemic, after earthquake, after uh, volcanoes, tidal waves, mercy always comes. And then there's a period of peace. In this peace, we're rebuilding, we're planting, we're nurturing, we're caring for one another, we're rebuilding. But in every society, about 2% of the beings in that society will refuse to obey the law. And so we bring along justice, and justice works. We incarcerate the really bad ones so we can keep our societies safe. We have constables and sheriffs and you know monitors, hall monitors, if you will. But eventually, uh, what happens is the wicked or the evil begin to get into leadership and into what we call the reign of the judges, and they corrupt the system. And then justice stops working. And what happens is the 98% of the people see that 2% of the people and nothing is happening to them. And when they come to power and they get weapons, they get airplanes and they get helicopters and bombs, then the people call for war. And that's the ultimate justice. Right now, we are in the justice cycle. We are, but we're nearing the end of it. If we don't get justice pretty soon, I fear we will cross over into war, but I'm pretty sure there's a push worldwide for justice against this force that's trying to take over our planet. Well, I think that's a great way to bring the interview to an end. So I just want to give you an opportunity to tell my viewers where they can go to find out more about you, to buy your books and find out about any future events you're organizing. I appreciate that, Michael. My website's brooksagley.com. Very simple. You can find out my, my podcast, which is every Wednesday and Sunday at 8 p.m. We're live on virtually every video platform out there. All my books are for sale there. I have health and aging products there. That's why I stay so young and beautiful. And uh, you can get those for yourself. I, I endorse them. I don't get any money from them, but I endorse them. And uh, you can find out all about me and support me and follow me from here on out. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.